Previously, on this podcast, we discussed what it means to be a Christian and what Christians should believe. That was in episode two. In this episode, we're going to flip that and answer the question, what do Christians not need to believe? My name is Stephen Cram, and welcome to My Apologies. An apology doesn't just mean saying that you're sorry. An apology can also mean giving a reason for something that you believe. For example, if I ask you, why do you believe in ghosts? I'm asking for an apology. On this channel, we will examine various apologies for living a life of faith and virtue. And if I say something that offends you, my apologies. As mentioned in the intro, we're answering the question today, what do Christians not need to believe, according to C.S. Lewis? Up until now, we've been in book one, or section one, of mere Christianity. And now, we're finally dipping our toes into book two, chapter one. Book two, as a whole, is named What Christians Believe. So that kind of gives us an idea of what we're going to be looking at. Book one, up until now, we've been examining Lewis's argument for theism generally. It's been really general, and he really specifically did not address Christianity and the Christian beliefs. Now, though, he's going to start building a case for Christianity specifically, and things really start to get moving in that direction. Before we actually read from your Christianity, though, today, we'll start with an argument by an atheist named Stephen F. Roberts and his argument against God. Then after we look at that, we'll read Mere Christianity and see how Lewis would answer Robert's argument. Then finally, we'll answer the question, what do Christians not need to believe? All right, so this quote from the atheist Stephen F. Roberts. Now, I don't just want to say the quote and then make fun of the quote. I actually want to steel man his argument. Steel manning is the opposite of straw manning, which is a logical fallacy in debate. So to understand what this is, I just want to explain right off the bat. Imagine you schedule to have a fight with the school bully. Scut Farkas, maybe, we'll call him. You can't fight in school. The teachers will break it up, so you're going to meet just off campus right after school. You've scheduled it. All the kids know about it. Everyone's stoked to see you fight Scut Farkas. At the end of the day, the bell rings, and everyone runs to that location. Maybe it's a field around the edge of campus. And when they arrive, everyone finds a really confusing scene. They see you punching a stuffed scarecrow that has been designed to look like Scut Farkas. It's got a name tag, maybe, that says, my name is Scut, uh, and everything. It's clearly supposed to be him. But the actual person, the actual bully you're supposed to be fighting, is standing off to the side, looking equally confused. You're not even trying to hit him. You're hitting this scarecrow that's clearly supposed to look like him. So in logic, a straw man argument is like this. Your opponent has an argument that he's trying to defend. That's the whole point of like a logical debate. But you don't want to address your opponent directly and his actual argument. Instead, you stand up a distorted and weaker version, a, a scarecrow, a straw man of the opponent's argument, and you attack that instead. A steel man would be the opposite of this. Straw man, steel man, you see how the opposite comes from that? Instead of standing up a weaker version of the argument, I want to stand up the strongest possible version of Stephen F. Roberts's argument to interact with. So I'm going to build up his argument first before we look into C.S. Lewis and mere Christianity. All right. So when I was reading in preparation for this episode, this argument came to my mind because I had heard it before, mostly on YouTube from other atheists. So I looked up where it originally came from, and it seems like this guy, Stephen F. Roberts, was the first person to ever use this argument, to ever write it on the internet. So I'm going to quote his version of the argument. When speaking with Christians as an atheist, he says, I contend that we are both atheists. I just believe in one fewer God than you do. 
When you understand why you dismiss all other possible gods, you will understand why I dismiss yours. So in this quote, he says, we're both atheists, basically, in the sense that we both deny the existence of gods broadly. The Christian just believes in one more God than the atheist does. And that's an insignificant number in his mind. The list, if you, you can imagine a list of all possible gods that have ever existed and you could ever believe in. And if you compare the atheist's list with the Christian's list, it looks almost identical. Each of them has checked the no box rather than the yes box for almost all of them. They only differ in one place. In Mr. Roberts' mind, if the Christian is willing to cross off the God of the Bible the same way he's crossed off all other possible gods, he too would be an atheist in its fullest sense. I'm used to using analogies to make my own point, but since I'm steel manning Roberts, here's an analogy for his point. What if we take a list of creatures and before I get into this gentle warning, if you have kids listening, I don't want to disabuse them of any certain beliefs. Uh, so, give you a second to turn it off if there's kids listening. You can come back to this later. Okay, what if we have a list of creatures? Unicorns, leprechauns, the tooth fairy, Santa Claus. Pretty long list of creatures. The person who doesn't believe in any of these creatures calls them fictional or fantasy creatures. And if they were asked, do they exist? They would go through each one and say, no, no, they don't exist. No, no, to all of them. Now, if you don't believe in any of those, why would you pick out one? Santa, for example, and say, all those other ones are fake, but I believe that this one is real. You're just deceiving yourself. You'd be better off just admitting that they're all imaginary creatures. Why pick out one and use it as the exception? It doesn't make any sense. In this way, Roberts and those who perpetuate his argument suggest that just like all those creatures on our list just now were fantasy, all the gods people have believed in are fantasy as well. There is no use in believing in fantasy gods. It's childish. If the Christian just wants to be reasonable, he should admit that the whole list of gods is fantasy, not the whole list minus the one he has decided to prefer. Now, as promised, let's look at what Lewis says in Mere Christianity Book 2, Chapter 1. It reads, I have been asked to tell you what Christians believe, and I'm going to begin by telling you one thing that Christians do not need to believe. If you are a Christian, you do not have to believe that all the other religions are simply wrong all through. If you are an atheist, you do have to believe that the main point in all the religions of the whole world is simply one huge mistake. If you are a Christian, you are free to think that all those religions, even the queerest ones, contain at least some hint of the truth. When I was an atheist, I had to try to persuade myself that most of the human race has always been wrong about the question that mattered to them most. When I became a Christian, I was able to take a more liberal view. So if you remember, our first episode of this Mere Christianity series covered Lewis's life, and he was an atheist for a good portion of that life, so he speaks from experience here. As an atheist, he remembers he had to stand on the ground that all belief in a god or gods was completely fantasy. That whole idea was fictional a fictional understanding of the world. All people who have believed in this fantasy in different ways, the different kinds of gods, for all of history, they were wrong. This is the foundation that Roberts is arguing from. When Lewis became a Christian, though, he says that it allowed him a more nuanced view. He says that what Christians don't have to believe is that other religions are wrong all the way through. Hang with me now as we break this down. Remember our fictional creatures example with the tooth fairy and leprechauns and Santa Claus. The reality is not that we just have this list of fictional creatures to go through that someone came up with. We have a real mystery to solve and a list of culprits to examine. That's a better way to look at the world. Imagine with me 
an adjusted example of these fictional creatures. Think back to your childhood. Imagine yourself as a little kid. Yesterday, you lost a tooth. It was wiggling for weeks. You were playing around with it in your mouth. You were a little bit afraid you were going to swallow it, but it popped out. You put it under your pillow. Your sibling or your parents, maybe they told you if you did so, you'd wake up and it would have been replaced with money. So you did, naturally. You want to get, you want to get some free money. Well, this morning when you woke up, the tooth was gone, and in its place was a crisp dollar bill. And maybe kids are getting more or less from teeth these days. I really don't know how inflation has impacted the tooth market, but let's just go with a dollar because it's easy to remember. So how did this occur? How did this transformation occur from the tooth to the dollar? There are two basic ways you could explain this. Way one, someone took the tooth and replaced it with a dollar. Way two, the tooth somehow naturally became the dollar. So you maybe ask around. Your friend at school says it was the tooth fairy. Another friend says maybe it was a leprechaun. Your baby sister says maybe it was Santa because that's all she knows. Your older brother laughs at all these answers and tells you that your mom and dad clearly did it. Then finally, you ask your weird uncle, and he totally breaks the mold and says, no one put it there. No one took the tooth and replaced it with a dollar. Your tooth grew into a dollar naturally. That's just what happens with teeth. So you have a few arguments that people have given you for someone putting the dollar there. And you have one argument from your uncle saying that it happened naturally. Now, if we take Robert's argument and apply it here, he would say that if you don't think it was Santa or the Tooth Fairy or a leprechaun, you shouldn't believe that anyone did it. If you had this list of somebodies who could be guilty and you're going through and crossing them all off, why would you believe your parents did it when you reject all the other possible somebodies who might have done it? Instead, you should believe your uncle who says no one did anything. It just happened naturally. Now, I will say, we all listening to this podcast know where the money came from. But if you didn't, if you were a small kid and you were actually trying to figure this out, it may be perfectly reasonable to believe that the teeth naturally grew into dollars. That could be the way things work in this world. You don't know. And it's, it's funny to us, but from a child's point of view, this really could be the way things happen. So all I'm trying to show is that just because you deny that a bunch of somebodies are probably not responsible, that doesn't mean that nobody did it and you should just jump to the natural answer. Lewis acknowledges that when he was an atheist, he thought this way. All explanations of a being being responsible for the world must be unreasonable. But when he became a Christian, he could admit that people who said a being was responsible for the world were on the right track. Even if they weren't 100% correct as to the identity of that mystery being, they were headed in the right direction. This is the more charitable view, or as Lewis says, the more liberal view. We don't need to believe that the very idea of a God is wrong just because a lot of people who believed in gods were wrong about that God that they believed in. We can acknowledge that other religions have something about them that represent the truth, even if it's just the bare fact that a God exists. Now this, may, this idea might make some of you uncomfortable, but before I lose you, let me say, Lewis is not suggesting the ridiculous idea that there are multiple legitimate ways to get to God in like an all roads lead to Rome kind of way. So, in order to show this, I'll continue reading from the passage we read from before. Lewis says, But of course, being a Christian does mean thinking that where Christianity differs from other religions, Christianity is right and they are wrong. As in arithmetic, there is only one right answer to a sum, and all the other answers are wrong. But some of the wrong answers are much nearer to being right than others. Lewis is not saying that multiple religions can be right and acceptable. 
He's only saying that these other religions might be right about some things. And in fact, they are right about the most essential thing, that a God exists and is responsible for this whole crazy world we live in. The other day, my family was playing a board game. My brother-in-law, who is colorblind, often will ask what color things are, just because he's interested. He asked what a particular game piece was, and I answered that it was blue. My wife and everyone else at the table looked at me funny and said that it was green. Now, I will, of course, yield to their opinion. I think it's kind of in the middle between the two. But uh, my wife said it was green. The majority of people said it was green. So I'll admit the piece must be green. Now, if you had asked my brother-in-law, if you had, like, gun to your head, what color do you think it is? Because he's colorblind, he might have guessed something totally off, like red. And so if he did, even though I was wrong in saying it was a blue piece, my saying blue would be closer to the truth than him saying red. Blue is closer to green than red is. Red is the exact opposite. Even though I was, we're both wrong. Don't get me wrong. We both have the wrong answer. But my answer is closer to the truth than his. If we compare religions now in a similar way to Christianity, Islam and Judaism are much closer to Christianity than ancient Greek or Norse worship just by virtue of them being monotheistic religions, only having one God. So that's an example. And even then, you could say that the Greeks worshiping Zeus as being the god of lightning and thunder is displaying an aspect of the truth because the true god does control the weather, right? So there are still things that are true. You could glean maybe some true facts from other religions. They could be mostly wrong. And you can have religions like Islam and Judaism that are closer to Christianity than others. Of course, As Lewis says, where these other religions differ from Christianity, the Christian must affirm that Christianity is right and the others are wrong. That's what it means to be a Christian, that you believe the Christian things. But he doesn't have to believe that all religions are 100% false, like atheists do, like Stephen F. Roberts does. So that's what Christians do not need to believe. Before we close, though, I want to mention one last thing. In the passage we looked at today, Lewis mentioned that Christianity differs from other religions in some ways, and we should agree with what Christianity says in those places. While it's true that Christians don't have to believe other religions are 100% false, they all have false things about them. So what are some key distinctions between Christianity and other religions? I would like to offer three to think about today. The first, God is triune in Christianity. So let's break that down. While Christianity is monotheistic, meaning we only believe in one God, we believe that that God is triune. This is the doctrine of the Trinity, that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This doctrine stands opposed to a Unitarian view of God, in which God is only one person. To make it simple, Christians believe that God is one what and three who's. Jews and Muslims believe God is one what and one who. Book four of Mere Christianity addresses this topic in Lewis's way, and so we'll discuss it then. We don't really have time to do it here. And that's not really the point of this section. You may argue whether or not the Trinity is true. That's not what I'm trying to prove here. But you can't argue that the doctrine of the Trinity is not an essential doctrine within Christianity. And that's what we're talking about. What are the distinctives about Christianity? So, God as triune, distinctive number one of Christianity. Distinctive number two, God is intimately personal in a unique way. Christians believe in a God that is infinitely powerful. He created everything that exists, and he's in complete control of everything in the realm of his creation. So you might expect such a God to be kind of uppity and above dealing with dirty humans like us. But at the same time that he's so powerful, he is immensely personal in a way that you don't find in other religions. 
We call God, for example, Father. We're invited to think of him as our dad, even though he's the king of all creation. He's a king who has adopted us in a real way and loves us better than any human father could. God came down and took on human flesh in Jesus. That's incredibly intimate. He became like us so that he could relate to us and know what it is to be human. And then third, the Holy Spirit now dwells within us. God doesn't just live outside of us, observing us from a distance. He actually lives within us. He knows us. God is not distant as a deist might think. He's all around us and within us, changing us from the inside. This is a sort of intimately personal God that exists nowhere else in the vast options of religions. The third distinction is that God saves us in Christianity. Most religions provide a set of rules and requirements, maybe some sacrifices, that allow you to have peace with God. They all require humans to move first. So maybe in order for your crops to grow well this year, you need to sacrifice a goat. Requires human action to appease God. Christianity is the only religion where God moves proactively to save us. He does this in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which provided for us the way to have peace with him. He moved first. This grace, this free gift, made Christianity unique as well. So these three distinctives, God as triune, God as intimately personal, and God saving us are distinctives of Christianity that as Christians, we should believe as opposed to the beliefs of other religions. So today, what did we look at? We discussed an atheist argument from Stephen F. Roberts and what Lewis would have to say about it. We answered the question, what do Christians not need to believe? And finally, we looked at some distinctions of Christianity in comparison with all the other world religions. Now, if you enjoyed this episode and you haven't subscribed yet, please do. Share this episode with a friend and leave a five-star review. It really helps us get the word out to more people who would enjoy this content. If you want to reach out to me, you can either join my Locals page, link in the show notes, or tweet at MyApologiesPod. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, my name is Stephen Cram, and this is My Apologies. My Apologies.